Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi Kate. Hi there Hattie, it's lovely to be in your virtual company again. And thanks to our supporter BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. Well, it's just the time of year. Now the clocks have gone back to cosy up with a great book. And hopefully we'll be able to provide a bit of inspiration for your next read in this edition of the podcast. Autumn is also a great time of year to start learning something new. And just before we started this recording, I took a look at the courses you can do with libraries at the moment. The team are now hosting loads of their courses online and most of them are completely free. Yeah, I was maybe thinking I could uh, take up the guitar or maybe improve my photography skills. (laughs) While I'm staying home and struggling to find inspiration for keeping fit, I thought one of their fitness classes might be a good idea. We'll include a link to all of the courses on our show notes for anyone who wants to know more. Okay, well, this episode's title is inspired by Ellie Griffith's new book, The Postscript Murders, as Ellie came into our virtual studios as this episode's guest author. And later in the podcast, we'll be joined by Jane from Totten Library, who's going to give us some of her recommendations for Goodreads. And we'll be finding out what she thinks about Matt Haig's aptly named The Midnight Library. What a great title for a book. Okay, so on to our guest author, Ellie Griffiths who, despite only being published for the first time in 2004, now has almost 30 novels to her name. I say to her name, but four of her earliest books are published under another name, Dominica de Rossa. Yeah, and it sounds like she made up that name to write those early Italian romances, but in fact, it's the other way round. Dominica is her real name, and she had to make up the name Ellie Griffiths when she moved into crime fiction. Her Norfolk-based series about archaeologist Dr Ruth Galloway is incredibly popular. I was delighted to discover them myself a few years ago. And she's also written a series set in post-war Brighton, which is called the Stevens and Mephisto novels. Her latest book, The Postscript Murders, isn't part of either of these series. It's a bit of a standalone novel because although in this book D.S. Harbinder makes a welcome return from Ellie's 2018 novel, The Stranger Diaries, it's a book with a very different feel. The Stranger Diaries had quite a gothic feel, whereas her new novel is, it owes much more to the sort of golden age of crime fiction, as well, of course, to her early career in publishing. Here's Ellie, when I met up with her online, to talk about the postscript murders. It starts with her reading from the book's prologue. This is the prologue to the postscript murders. The two men have been standing there for 18 minutes. Peggy has been timing them on her stopwatch. They parked on the seafront just in front of Benedict's Cafe, a white Ford Fiesta. Annoyingly, she can't see the registration, but if she uses her binoculars, she can see a dent on the near side door. If they have hired the car, the company would have taken a note of this. Peggy makes a note too, getting out her investigation book, which is cunningly disguised as a seaside lady's diary, complete with saccharine watercolours of shells and fishing boats. There are several reasons why Peggy finds the men suspicious. They look out of place in Shoreham by sea, for one thing. Sometimes, just for fun and to keep her observational powers honed, Peggy makes an inventory of people who've passed her window. Monday, September 3rd, 2018. 10am to 11am. Seven pensioners, two couples, three singles. One man on roller skates, 30s. 
brackets, too old. Four, sing four singles with dogs, two collie crosses, one pug, one doodle, NB. People always remember dogs. Woman, 30s, smartly dressed, talking on phone. Man, 60s, carrying bin liner, probably homeless. Four cyclists, two male joggers, one fit looking, one looking on the verge of collapse. One unicyclist, probably from Brighton. The men outside her window do not fit this pattern. They are not cycling, jogging or accompanied by dogs. They are not pensioners. They're probably mid to late thirties with short hair, wearing jeans and short jackets, one blue, one grey. What would young people call them? Bomber jackets. An ill-starred name if she ever heard one. The men look similar because of the way they're dressed, but Peggy doesn't think they are related. One is much darker skin than the other and built differently, compact rather than wiry. She doesn't think they're lovers either. They don't touch or look at each other. They aren't laughing or arguing. The two best ways to spot if people are a couple. They're just standing there, maybe waiting for something. Occasionally, the one in the blue jacket looks up at the flats, but Peggy keeps back behind her curtains. She's very good at disappearing into the background. All old people are. At first, she wondered if the bomber jackets had driven over specially for Benedict's coffee, which is excellent. But the men don't move towards the shack. There's an alertness about them that Peggy finds most troubling of all, and they both have their backs to the sea. Who comes to Shoreham Beach and doesn't even glance at the shimmering water, looking at its very best today, dotted with sailing boats and accessorised with seagulls? But the crop-haired duo are facing the road, and Seaview Court, the block of retirement flats where Peggy is currently lurking in a bay window. There's no doubt about it. The men are waiting for something. Thanks very much for joining us on our Love Your Library podcast. Can you tell us a bit about your new book? It's, um, it's a standalone, but it does feature the detective from The Stranger Diaries, Harbin Decor. It's a kind of standalone, a whole new cast of characters. It starts off in, uh, in Shoreham, which is, is near me in Brighton, uh, with, with an elderly lady dying in some sheltered uh, flats there on the seafront. But her carer then realises that she's a little surprised to find, first of all, a, a business card describing this elderly lady as a murder consultant. And then to find that she is uh, mentioned in quite a few crime novels. And it turns out that Peggy Smith was employed by crime writers to think of murders. So has someone murdered her? And it's a case that put, brings together the Ukrainian carer, um, the guy who runs the coffee shop on the seafront, who's an ex-monk. And uh, eight-year-old Edwin, who was Peggy's neighbour. So it brings together, I hope, a really diverse group of characters whom I loved writing about, I have to say. And they go on a bit of a road trip, which I always do enjoy as well. These three characters who join together to, to help or or maybe sometimes hinder Harbinger's <laughs> investigation. I loved Edwin. Uh, oh, just, I'm so uh, pleased. The, uh, the retired BBC producer, and uh, Natalka and Benedict, the, the former monk who runs the coffee shop. And what a fantastic bunch they were. I mean, I, I loved reading about them. And as you say, this unlikely friendship group they make. And I'm, I have to ask, do you have plans to bring any of them back? I was, I did see that, well, is it Claire who makes a sort of guest appearance yes. from your first Harbinger story? I can't bear the thought of not hearing from Edwin again. Oh, that's so nice of you to say that. And actually, <laughs> I, I really did enjoy writing Edwin. You know, it's it's something that writers often think about when they write about a character who's 
background is not similar to their own you know what that's like and I have to say in this case it was it was a lot of fun I did like writing about him the top this is my problem as a writer is I keep saying oh it's a standalone and then I do get really <laughs> fond of the characters and the same with Harbinder and Claire who does pop up briefly in this book so I'm never going to say never they might pop up again you know um, and and having had a taste for solving a murder in this one I think they might really like to get together and solve another one Yes, they definitely caught the detective fever. Yes. And as you say, it's the second of your crime novels to feature Detective Sergeant Harbinder, who you introduced in The Stranger Diaries. But I am right in saying this book's got a slightly different feel to The Stranger Diaries. That had quite a kind of gothic atmosphere, whereas this is more sort of golden age. Very much so, yes. And, I, you know, that's one of the fun things about being a crime writer as well, isn't it? Because there's so many things you can do that are still within the crime genre, yes, it was very much more a golden age, as I say, a bit of a road trip. Each chapter's from a different viewpoint and each chapter has a little heading. The, the Stranger Diaries was, was a kind of tribute to the gothic and it was quite scary, I hope. And although I think there were some scary and maybe some shocking moments in this, I think it is much more a kind of old-fashioned detective romp, really. Harbinder herself, now people who haven't read The Stranger Diaries, she isn't the sort of cliched police character you might get in a run-of-the-mill crime novel. And were you purposely trying to break out of the norm with her? I, I Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that she was one of those characters who did just, in a way, suddenly appear. And, um, and I, I always feel a bit guilty about saying that because I teach creative writing and I'm always saying to my students, oh, you know, when you, when you create a character, you've got to give them a backstory, you've got to give them a timeline and you can't just have them appear. And I always say that Ruth Galloway just appeared out of the mist, which uh, I, I know. Oh, I just saw her walking out of the mist. It's very annoying. But Harbinder did too. She's, she is uh, she born and brought up in uh, West Sussex, but from an Indian family. She's a from a Sikh family. She's gay. She reckons she's the only gay Sikh detective in West Sussex, which uh, I think is probably true in my fictional world anyhow. And she is very acerbic. She's one of those characters who kind of says the things that I wish I'd thought of saying you know, at the <laughs> time. Uh, and she's slightly driven mad by her partner, Neil, who's good hearted, but a little bit slower on the uptake. And um, she is a fun character to write about. She really is. Well, that, that's something I'd say about the book. It is really, I mean, there are moments of tension, but it is really good fun. And I, I can see you had great fun with the chapter headings as well. That, oh, that's something you. I really enjoyed. <laughs> now, you've, as you say, you've set this book primarily in Shoreham, which is just along the coast from Brighton, which you, I might not think of as a hotbed of crime and murder. So why do you did you pick this particular location? Well, I seem to be slightly drawn to that bit of Sussex, partly because I teach at Westine College, which is near Chichester. So that's West Sussex. And for somebody who's kind of lived most of their life in East Sussex, West Sussex is quite different. <laughs> it's, it's very beautiful, sort of the area around Chichester. I've also written about, about Stenning and the area around there and the a deserted um, cement factory that's there and also about beautiful stunning bookshop and all those lovely pretty places so I think I'm very drawn to places like Norfolk in the uh, Ruth Galloway books that are both beautiful but also a tiny bit sinister but also I've always been very fond of Shoreham and I think anywhere that has a, a you know traffic coming in and out and has a harbour 
is an interesting place for, for a crime novel because, and also it's very near, there's an airport and airports are always very, very handy. And I've, I've flown from Shoreham Airport a few times and it's very beautiful, actually. Lovely Art Deco building. So all those things are helpful. And also I did like the um, the fact that there are a lot of retired people in Shoreham you know, and who better to have solving a crime, really? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the the difficult things about the book is that uh, lovely Peggy Smith does uh, doesn't last very long in it, and I would like to know much more about her life. And maybe that's another character you'll have to be writing about her and her pals. Yes, I did wonder if you, but you could get yourself <laughs> tied up in terrible knots. I did wonder <laughs> if she had ever met Stevens and Mephisto from the Brighton Mysteries, and you know, in the uh, in the end, you get very. Um, you know, I've written the, these books for children about a girl called Justice. The first one's called A Girl Called Justice, and they're set in the 1930s. And it's something, kids are such wonderful audiences when you go and talk to them, and they ask amazing questions. And they often say things like, could Ruth be Justice's granddaughter? And I think, oh, maybe she could. But I think it would just become too complicated if I started going down <laughs> that route. Now, look, this is a really great book for anyone who loves reading oh, because it gives you quite a bit of insight into the world of writers and publishers and agents and, and book festivals. Now, I understand this is your background, isn't it, before you became a full-time writer. And so is this setting one you've been keen to explore for a while? Yeah, very much so, actually. Yes, um, I was. Uh, I worked in publishing before I was a writer. I was actually um, eventually editorial director at HarperCollins for children's books, but kind of worked my way up through, first of all, publicity and then editorial. But, you know, it goes back further than that, because my very first ever book, um, which was written when I was 11, was called The Hair of the Dog, which must have been something my parents talked about, I guess. And it was a murder mystery, and it was set in Rottingdean, which is, is near where I was brought up in Saltdean. Uh, and... And that features a writer and a plot that, that involves a book. And so I must have been interested in that, even then, even when I was 11. And yes, you know, uh, it's quite nice to have a background that you know a little bit about. And I'm lucky enough to go to quite a few writing festivals and crime writing events. And, and as I do say in the book, the crime writing world is actually a very, very generous and friendly one. And I can't tell you how generous established writers like Peter James and, and Val McDermott were to me when I started up. And I do try and, and pay, pay that along a little bit with, with, with debut authors now. But so it is actually a very friendly friendly world but you know it's I think it's a rather interesting world because you get these people who are basically we're all writing these about these terrible murders and then <laughs> in the evening there we are in the bar having a lovely drink together and being very jolly so I, it was an interesting world to write about I have to say. Yeah, I was really intrigued by the scene in your book in the at the at the book festival when someone asks a panel of writers if they think women are particularly attracted to violent books. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering, had you put any thought to this, and do you think this is the case? I have thought about it. It's something I've been asked um, because a lot of I, I don't know. Uh, I think there has been research done into it. There are obviously a lot of women crime writers, but lots and lots of women read crime and. Most of the events I do are probably 80% women in the audience. I don't really know what it is. I think there are lots of answers. Uh, and I think some of the, the panellists give them in, 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 the, um, in the book. You know, there is maybe, maybe a sort of catharsis working out what ha would happen in the worst case scenario, but knowing that you're safe reading it within a book, you know. And maybe women have been in those situations where they've been scared more than, than a man has. But I also think there is something about justice 
And I do think that every crime reader, uh, that, that is something that appeals to people, perhaps particularly when our world is in a bit of a state of chaos, as maybe it is at the moment, there is something about a book where justice is served. And I think that's something all readers like, really. One of the writers in the book uh, talks about the expectations from publishers nowadays, that it's not just enough to write a book. You have to go out there and sell it something which this particular character doesn't find easy. But I'm I'm guessing as a publisher turned author, you've got a bit more enthusiasm for this side of the publishing business. Well, I actually do really love that side of it. I really <laughs> love doing events. As I said earlier on, I'm really missing it because what's nicer than meeting people who like your books? You know, there are certainly some sort of events I would be quite nervous about, but I'm, I'm not nervous about doing a book event because you're talking to people who, who, if they've come, they like your work and that's just the nicest thing, and I'm never, ever going to take it for granted. And also, I mean, you know this too, I honestly think that book people are nice people, you know, people who spend their time reading books, you know, booksellers, librarians, people who go to bookshops and libraries tend to be very nice. Um, I always have something in common with them. So I really, really like that. But but I mean, it's certainly true that nowadays there is a bit of expectation on writers to be able to do that, to be able to go and talk to an audience, say, for 40 minutes and take questions for another 20. That doesn't come easily to most people. And certainly you don't necessarily become a writer if you're good at public speaking. They're not, You know, writing is quite a solitary thing, isn't it? So the two might not necessarily go together. But I have to say, in my experience, um, publishers are quite understanding about that. It's not for everyone. One other issue that came up among your, the authors talking, which always intrigues me because I, I think, oh, well, that must be something you feel yourself, is the, the idea of the double standards that people have about crime fiction, the way that many people just dismiss it as somehow kind of unworthy, unless, of course, it's been written by a man. <laughs> Do you think there is this kind of double standard? Do you think it does exist? I try not to go on about it too much, but of course it has found its way into this book. So, um, you know, there is, there is a little bit of a double standard. I mean, it, it's it's a bit of a cliche now to say, but it's still true. Hamlet is a crime novel. You know, Macbeth is a crime novel. Woman in White is definitely a crime novel, as is, as is The Moonstone. But, you know, dead men are, are able to write crime novels and then, and then be classics, you know. And I think there is a bit of a, you know, there's a little bit of a prejudice. For example, I'm a huge fan of C.J. Sanson's Shard Lake books uh, set in Tudor England. Now, to my mind, and I also love Hilary Mantel, but to my mind, they're as good. So why hasn't C.J. Sanson, you know, won the Booker Prize? I think he should, really. But on the other hand, I have to say, I'm not going to be sitting here complaining because there are many positives to writing a crime novel. And sometimes I get students, you know, in my creative writing class who've got a, a book with a detective solving a murder. And I say, so, in a crime novel, and they say, oh, no, it's not crime. And I always say, well, think about it. It's quite good to write a crime novel, really, for a start that people love crime. People read crime. You know, there's a crime section in most bookshops. There are crime reviewers in most papers. You know, it's not a bad thing to be in that crime box, really. But just occasionally, I think we're allowed a little bit of moan about not winning the Booker Prize. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, of course, the, as you've mentioned, the Harbinger books aren't the only characters you've written about. You've also wrote the hugely popular Ruth Galloway series, as you've touched on, and the Stevens and Mephisto series, which is set in the 1950s, as well as children's books and books under, under your other name. Uh, and yet you've published your first crime novel, and I found this really hard to believe. It's only about 11 or so years ago. So you must be incredibly focused 
to be so productive. So I'd be really interested to know a little bit about your writing process um, and how you must be so disciplined to uh, to achieve so much so quickly. This is the trouble with uh, lockdown, isn't it? It's allowed your family to see you working. And my <laughs> husband has said to me a few times, every time I look up at the shed, because I work in a shed at the top of the garden, he says, every time I look up, you're staring out of the window. <laughs> and there is a certain amount of staring out of the window. But but yes, I mean, I suppose I have racked up quite a few books in a relatively short length of time. I think it's 25 books altogether, including the books written under my own name, Domenica De Rosa, which sounds made up, but is my real name. I <laughs> am um, quite disciplined. I mean, I'm very lucky, really. So after about six books, I was able to, to uh, before then, I was still an editor. I was able to give that up and write full time. So first of all, I'm very lucky to have to write full time. Also, my children are grown up now, so I don't have those childcare issues. So I am very lucky to be able to spend most of my time writing but having said that I think I, I tend not to spend from nine to five writing uh, I start working about 8 a.m I've got a cat a cat called Gus and about eight every morning he comes up to the shed and sits by the door and he's like my little conscience you know I know that I should go up and start writing then so you know I, I write usually write all morning I try and write at least a thousand words a day and you know my books are about 90,000 words long so the theory is that if you write a thousand words a day you'd write in that 90 days it doesn't quite work out like that I don't do loads of drafts I really do just do one draft so that helps too but I, I change it as I go along obviously it doesn't all just come out but so I think in that way I am quite disciplined really and finally could you tell us about what you're working on at the moment Right. Well, I've just finished the Ruth book 13. So uh, these are the Dr. Ruth Galloway mysteries. And it is quite amazing to me that I'm on number 13. And this is called The Nighthawk. And it starts off when a group of metal detectorists, who are sometimes disparagingly called Nighthawks, find a body on the beach in Norfolk. The, the resulting investigation brings Ruth and Nelson together again. And it also involves a very sinister farmhouse called Black Dog Farm, which allowed me to investigate the wonderfully spooky Norfolk legend of the Black Shuck this black dog that appears to you um, usually just before you die to be rather to be you know one of those cheery little apparitions although <laughs> Cathbed says it's not quite that simple so that's what I finished so I've finished writing it I'm going to be editing it now and it'll be out in February 2021 Ellie is yet another warm and generous writer in the crime fiction genre just as Anthony Horowitz was talking about in the last podcast there's a great sense of collegiate support among these writers. So on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by Jane from Totten Library to talk about some of her top picks. We'll include links to all the books we mention on our episode show notes. Welcome to the Hampshire Libraries podcast, Jane. Why, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Lovely to have you. You're based mainly at Totten Library. Am I right in thinking it had a bit of a makeover? Was it last year or was it earlier than that? Uh, we, we had a beautiful makeover uh, a bit over a year ago now. Um, we got completely refurbished. Um, we, we've been around for 60 years. This was actually our 60th birthday. It's really in the heart of the community, this library. So it's lovely to have had some money invested in it. I'm not too far from Totten. I might have to pop over and give it a look. And it's been lovely to have Totten back open again in recent months. Uh, has it been good to be back inside the library? Oh, it's been lovely to be back. We've, we've had some lovely customers who've been very excited to have us back and to welcome us back into their lives. Uh, they've been wonderful. Jane, before we start talking about the book itself, it's always really interesting to find out about whether library staff use BorrowBox or whether they're 
wedded to an actual book that they hold in their hands. How do you feel about Box? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm with everything. If, if it's a book, it's a book. Um, I, I used to commute a lot uh, to the library. So I used to use BorrowBox for a lot of it, the e-audio. I still sometimes use it. Um, I quite often use the e-audio when I want to read a book a second time and just get a different perspective on it. Uh, but yeah, I love BorrowBox. Yeah, it's interesting sometimes that you have the, uh, the author themselves reading the book, which can work really well, like the Lem Sisse book. It re- worked perfectly having him read uh, My Name Is Why. But other times I think they ought to hand it over to an actor. I, th- I think it depends. I mean, I, I listened to the Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman on Box, and he narrates that. And I could have listened to him for hours and hours and hours. He was amazing to listen to. No, I haven't listened to that. I must give it a go. So on to the book itself. So Jane, could you give us a quick synopsis? What's the premise of, of the Midnight Library? Okay, so The Midnight Library by Matt Haig is about a woman who is just drowning in regret. And she gets the chance to experience all the lives that she could have lived if she'd made different choices. Uh, So within this half world between life and death, which is where the Midnight Library is, she gets to be guided by this friendly librarian person who shows her all the different lives that she could live and she gets to try on these different lives to see what would be the best fit. Can I ask what made you read the book in the first place? Was it a book that was somebody recommended to you or um, had you heard other people talk about it? Matt Haig, the, the author, is somebody who I follow on Twitter He's, he's fairly sort of vocal on Twitter and I'd always been meaning to read his books. And I saw the title of this new one coming out and thought, it's got a library in it. I must read that one at Midnight Library. What could be better? So yeah, I, I dived in there and it, he didn't disappoint. Yeah, it's amazing how many authors have written books that have a librarian or a library in there somewhere. What did you think about the book? Would you recommend it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I've been recommending it to everybody who I speak to, really. It's sort of slightly different to what I would normally read, but it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful one to read. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I found it a very easy read as well. It was one of those books where you pick it up and it's quite hard to pick down because there's lots of little kind of short episodes or um, short chapters and you just, you get gripped by all these different versions of her life that she lives. And And also, I just couldn't wait to hear how it was going to be resolved. What would be the conclusion in the end? Yeah, some of of the lives that she lived were completely fascinating. I I really loved some of them. Um, The polar bear was a particular standout (laughs) in in there without any spoilers. But yeah, I mean, it it, it was not what I was expecting when I first read, when you sort of first go into the book, the first few sentences sort of took me off guard. It does deal with sort of depression and suicide. I was going to say, it's interesting because I would say that although... You're right, the depression and suicide are the two themes that sort of come to the forefront of the book, but I wouldn't even necessarily say that it's a book about depression. It's not a book about suicide. It's so much more than that. Interestingly, I've heard in interviews that Matt Haig was originally going to write this character as a as a man, but then he decided it would be a bit too autobiographical. And He is, of course, best known for his book Reasons to Stay Alive. And in that, he lays bare the severe depression and suicidal feelings that he was grappling with in his early 20s. I think having the character as a woman probably does remove a sense of that autobiographical nature, but it gives a sense of honesty and a sense of clarity to these feelings that do come with the book. Those feelings are threaded throughout in a really interesting way. But that honesty is something that just really breaks through and I think makes it quite 
quite relatable for a lot of readers. You don't have to have experienced those feelings to to relate to them or to understand them. Yeah, and and equally, I felt that he didn't try and sugarcoat depression. He didn't try and make it a sort of oh, if she she'd only just done this, then it, her life would have been sparkling. So it, it it was real, but still fantastical and still lovely. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I I think the the fact that it is a kind of magical imaginative setting doesn't take away from the fact that the way he describes the emotions that she's feeling are so honest and and I don't think if unless he'd have gone through those feelings himself he wouldn't have been able to write them in 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 a way like that I don't want to give any spoilers but there are some obvious comparisons with the classic film It's a Wonderful Life uh, which starts with the protagonist feeling that his life is pointless and everyone would be better off if he was dead and he's about to throw himself off a bridge when he's saved by the, uh, talked out a bit by the kindly uh, angel Clarence. So do you think there's a lot of similarities with this book, Jane? Yeah, I definitely think that there is. And also how it links to all of the, all of the characters around the main character. It's not just her story, it's, it's the community's story. Yeah, and I think it's got the same kind of message. This isn't a book that is just a novel, it has got a message, it's got something to take away from it at the end. And in the, I think he said himself that the message about accepting and realising you have a lot more to give than you think is a message that was in the original film and is a message in this book as well. But I, I also think it's worth mentioning this central theme that all these different overwhelming choices you could make with your life and what happens if you take the wrong path. It's something that he was inspired by uh, Sylvia Plath because it's something she talks about quite a lot and comes up in her in her novel, um, The Bell Jar, when she talks about the idea of the of the fig tree and looking up at the branches and not knowing which fig to choose. It is such an important theme in the book that he actually refers to this Sylvia Plath fig tree. In one of the lives she lived, she talks about this, this myriad of choices and how do, you, how do you choose the right one? And while you're desperately trying to choose the right one, all the, the fruit starts to wither and drop off and meaning you've lost out on a chance of, of taking those choices. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say as well, in that sense that it's entertaining story with a strong message, it has a bit of a Richard Curtis feel to it as well, you know, similar kind of vein to Love Actually and About Time. I find, I find that quite interesting. It's, it's that delivery system for a message. Yeah, also the, the old Sliding Doors movie was another one that it brought to mind for me. And uh, book-wise, probably the, the Five People That You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Albom. That was a, a similar sort of thing. The, if you died, who would the five people be that you would see in heaven that would have messages for you? It, was, it, was, it had the same sort of feel for me. Yeah, those ideas of playing around with things like parallel lives or different lives, if you'd taken a different turning, what would have happened? Those are fascinating ideas because we're all interested in what would happen if, if we made a slightly different choice. It talks about some quite dark areas, but it's also quite uplifting and quite entertaining at the same time, which is a, which is a very clever trick to pull off. Yeah, definitely. It, it is upbeat and it is, it is a reasonably fast read, despite the thickness of the book. I found it very easy to read. Now, this might be a really odd comparison, but it also really reminded me of one of my favourites, Ena Blyton's The Faraway Tree. I don't know whether oh, you've ever read it. Who doesn't love Ena Blyton? Exactly, who doesn't? <laughs> but in that, even though it's a children's story, you get the characters go off into different adventures at the top of The Faraway Tree. And it did give me that kind of sense 
sense about what adventure is she going to have next in the in the different life she's living in. Yeah, all, all the different worlds and all the different choices. I mean, Moonface regularly gave them choices, so <laughs> it's the same sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, I really enjoyed uh, some of the different worlds that she used to, what she got to participate in. Sort of, there were a lot of quiet lives. But you also got to try out sort of being a rock star and being an Olympian and the, the, the owning a country pub. You, you got to sort of try out some of the things that you yourself would wonder, like, I wonder what that would be like. So it was a lot of fun. I loved that the wise central figure, the book's version of Clarence the Angel and It's a Wonderful Life or sort of God figure, perhaps, was a librarian. What do you think the reason for that might have been? Well, I suppose it's sort of got two elements, sort of on the, the character's point of view, it was, it was her school librarian and it was somebody who she trusted. It was somebody who she had no regrets linked to. Every other character that we ever got to know, she had a regret linked to. Whereas she just, it, this was somebody who was always kind. So from the character's point of view, that made total sense to me. And then from, out, from the reader's point of view, hopefully it's because librarians and library staff are known to be trustworthy and kind and nice and well hopefully we are but yeah we try and help so hopefully it was linked to that yeah quite right too in fact um for, we've asked uh, matt Haig if you'd like to join us for a future episode of podcasts and so we're looking forward to to meeting up with him uh, in the new year what would you say about age recommendations jane because i felt it's very simply written and that there was some parts of it that reminded me of a children's adventure story, but there is some swearing in it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the biggest thing is sort of the trigger warning that, that it is based around the concept that she does try and commit suicide, despite the fact that you don't see it. Ultimately, there is that sort of depression and death side of things. But yeah, I think a teen plus sort of a, that sort of age group would quite happily be able to read it. I suppose the book is about regret. So you have to understand regret. And I don't think as a younger child, you properly got that grasp. So yeah, as long as they're old enough to understand regret, I think they'd love it. Yeah, the main characters, she's in her mid thirties, isn't she? So there may be some uh, aspects of, as you say, and until you've got to that sort of age, then it may not resonate so much. We've been talking about The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. I imagine it's, well, it's one that you've been recommending to uh, Totten Library visitors. So what else have you been recommending and what else have you been reading recently, Jane? Uh, well, I recently, on Box, I listened to The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern. That was a book out from last year, which I read in book form and I re-listened to in the audiobook. It had quite a cast of people, so that was quite interesting. And uh, that's Erin's second book. Uh, and I fell in love with her first one, which was The Night Circus, which was a, a magical circus in the Victorian era, which is open only at night which I just loved. So there's a little bit of a theme here going on of uh, midnight libraries and nighttime circuses. <laughs> yes, I hadn't seen that, but yes. Um. <laughs> She's an American author, is she? She is, yes. And is it the same? I've, I haven't read either of those books, but is it, are they the same kind of slightly fantasy, magical? Yeah, these ones are they're more, well, I suppose the Midnight Library is still fairly fantastical, but yes, the, the Starless Sea particularly is very, very fantastical. It is a, a magical world that is behind the door that's full of stories and it's full of keys and bees and magic. <laughs> and is that the kind of book it would normally appeal to you? Uh, I, I read a variety of books, but yes, I certainly love a bit of sort of magic in my reading. We all need a bit of magic in our lives, particularly at the moment. Particularly at the moment. And I was, I noticed that Jim Dale does the audiobook narration for The Night Circus, 
which may not mean much to the two of you, but he's still very dear to my heart from the uh, 70s film Carry On Screaming. And I believe he's really famous in the US now because he does the, uh, he narrates all the Harry Potter books while we, of course, have the incomparable Stephen Fry. I do admit that I love the Stephen Fry version, but yeah, Jim Dale does a very good version as well. Thank you for all of those suggestions, Jane. I'm really looking forward to trying out some of those Erin Morgenstein books. Yes, and thanks for encouraging me to read a Matt Hay book, because I haven't until now. Next podcast, we'll have another expert from our library team to talk about their recommendations. But in the meantime, thanks to you, Jane, for your contribution. Thanks for having me. Okay, now we're recording this podcast just before this year's Booker Prize winner is announced. Are you tempted by any of the shortlisted books, Hattie? Oh, it's hard to choose. I'm very keen to read them all, actually. But Diane Cook's The New Wilderness has caught my eye. It's the story of a mother and daughter battling to survive in a world ravaged by climate change. I really like a bit of post-apocalyptic fiction and I'm really excited to read this one. Yeah, I I actually felt really ashamed that I didn't recognise any of the authors on the Booker shortlist. But then I felt a bit better when I heard that four out of the six were debut novels. Imagine that. Imagine being shortlisted for your very first book. That must have been an amazing feeling. You say that about being shortlisted um, for a Booker Prize as your debut, but one of my favourite books, uh, if not my favourite, The God of Small Things by Arendetti Roy, was a Booker Prize winning debut. Still a classic many years later. It's one of my favourite books. I love it so much. It's now the time in the podcast when we talk about a few of our new and limited titles on BorrowBox this month. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes. One of our new unlimited titles is The Phone Box at the Edge of the World by Laura Imai Messina, which is inspired by the true story of a phone box in a small town in Japan which was devastated by the tsunami in 2011. Just as in this book, people travelled for miles to use the phone box to talk to loved ones they had lost. And there's also The Secret GP by Dr Max Skittle, which lifts the lid on what really goes on inside your doctor's surgery with a powerful first-hand account of working for the NHS both before and during the COVID epidemic. I actually downloaded it and started it this morning, so I'm looking forward to this one. I love both of Adam Kay's books, actually, so I'm really excited to read this one. Ah, you'll have to let us know how you get on. There's another one, which is The Crimson Petal and the White by Michael Faber, which many people will be familiar with because it was televised some years ago. And it's a no-holds-barred depiction of class differences and sexual mores of late Victorian London. And as always, one of these featured titles for November is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. And this month, it's The Foundling by the best-selling author of The Familiars, Stacey Halls. It's set in 18th century London, where a mother returns to claim the child she left at the Foundling Hospital, only to hear that the child has already been reclaimed. So, download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. There's just time to say thanks to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, how could you? You can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac. <laughs>